Hello, 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 and welcome to More Than Money, a show that explores the psychology, emotions, and math of money so you can make better, smarter choices regardless of where you fall on the income or wealth spectrums. I'm your host, Jaquette Timmons. On today's episode, we are going to talk about money myths and misinformation. And we're not just going to focus on that side of the equation, but we're also going to talk about, well, what's the alternative? What's the alternative mindset or behavior that you can tap into whenever you either see yourself subscribing to one of these myths or data points of misinformation, or that you can offer to someone else that you hear subscribing to one of these money myths and data points of misinformation? I don't have these listed in any particular order and I'm going to share with you 10. However, I did cluster them by scope or by area of your financial uh, life and just, you know, financial domain, if you will, just to keep them all kind of centralized in that way. So let's start with saving. Here's a myth that I know I have heard a lot, maybe you have, maybe you've even subscribed to it at one point or another. And it's this myth that says you need to earn a lot in order to save. Now, you know that's not true. <laughs> you know that's not true because you probably know someone, and, may, and this might even be you, who doesn't quote unquote earn a lot, but you are so disciplined with savings that the amount that you've saved relative to the amount that you earn is pretty significant and pretty impressive. And then on the flip side, you might know someone who earns a lot and yet they don't save a lot and especially relative to how much they earn. So this idea that there is some sort of relationship between earning more and um, actually saving is really a myth, a data point of misinformation because there are people that are actually living out the opposite of that. So there are people that earn a lot and don't save or don't save a lot. And there are people that don't earn a lot and are really good at saving. And this is a prompt to remind me to say once again, even though I've mentioned this in other episodes, $2.74 a day adds up to $1,000 at the end of the year. So this idea that, you know, if you can't do it all at once or if you can't do a lot, then what's the point of doing it really does a disservice because then that means that there are months, maybe even years that you're losing out on while you're waiting to get to this magical number that says, okay, now I can save. No, start where you are right now with what you can. So That's the reply to the myth of you need to earn more to save a lot. You don't. Start small. That small eventually adds up to significant. Another myth, and this myth has to do with investing. So if we think about saving as the money that you're setting aside and you're keeping that liquid, well, once you've decided, okay, I'm I'm taking care of on the liquidity side, what do I do with what's left over? How do I invest it? And one of the ways that you can do that, one of the ways that you can build wealth is by investing in the stock market. And there is a myth out there, and it's not even really a myth because there's some truth to it, but the myth that says investing in the stock market is risky. It is. But there are also guardrails and things that you can do to help mitigate that risk. 
here, the thing that I want people to be mindful of is don't just focus on the risk of what you potentially may lose, but also be mindful of the risk of what you are potentially missing out on. What's the gain that you are um, giving up because you're not investing? So don't have a narrow definition or narrow profile for risk because just as much as it is about you losing money, it's also about what you may not potentially gain because you're not investing. And related to that to some degree is this idea of, oh, it's too late to get started. You know, uh, why bother at this point? Well, let me tell you. In financial services, there are some financial companies where their actuarials are using the age of 93 to determine how long one's money ought to last for them. So let me put that in perspective. If you are planning to retire in the traditional route at 65, that then means that you need for your money to last you an additional 28 years. If you don't invest in the stock market, How are you going to make sure that you have money for an additional 28 years? So this idea that you're too old to get started in investing is just so, so untrue. If you wait until 92, well, then maybe that might be true, but you're not going to do that, right? You're going to get started and you're going to do what you can right now. So you're never too old to get started, whether that's with savings and especially with regards to investing. Related to that is this idea that either once you um, are in retirement or as you're getting close to retirement, that then you ought to not have stocks in your portfolio. Again, untrue. If, if you live until 93, you're going to need the benefits that come from investing in the stock market. So don't subscribe to this, uh, I call it a myth, one might call it a, a data point of misinformation. Either way, it's not helpful for you. Um, but don't subscribe to this idea that just because you're either fast approaching uh, retirement or are already in retirement, that that means you should not have stocks in your portfolio. Again, untrue. Another piece when it comes to investing is this idea that you have to be rich in order to invest. Now, at some point, that was true. It was true because of the cost of entry, if you will. But that cost of entry is, that barrier is no longer there. I do recall in the 80s where if a stock cost $100 and you only had 50, you couldn't buy into it because we didn't have the capacity to do fractional shares. Today we do. We not only have the technological capacity, we have apps that you can even have on your phone that you know automatically sweeps the difference between the price of what you paid and and rounding up to a dollar and it invests for you. So sometimes you might be investing, quote unquote, 28 cents, right? So this idea that you have to be rich to uh, invest in the stock market has been quelled by the technological advances in the last 20 to 30 years. There's so much that you can do. So that is no longer something that um, A, you should be subscribing to. And if you do, uh, we have an answer for that. Next, I want to talk about some of the myths and pieces of misinformation around debt. 
And look, I know that my voice in this space differs from a, a number of my peers. They that say that all debt is bad. I don't agree. I've shared that, I've expressed that in, on other platforms, I've expressed that in other episodes, but I think since we're talking about money, myths, and misinformation, this is a really good place to bring it up again. A mortgage is not a bad thing. That's not bad debt. Why? Because A, it helps you to move forward. It helps you to build wealth. It helps you to um, have a financial foundation. And it's the thing that you can then use to help you buy more property if you are strategic about it. So having a mortgage, in my opinion, is not a bad thing. Same with student loan debt. Yes, we need to have a conversation around the size of the you know, outstanding student loans and the obligations that go with paying it, but that's really a conversation around wage stagnation and uh, interest rates and all kinds of things that, we, that are not really around the value of having a student loan, which is the piece that I think gets lost in this conversation that says, you know, all debt is bad and, and, and student loans being, you know, included in that all debt is bad. It's not. It is the thing, again, that helps some of us to move forward, that helps some of us to have a more secure financial future, even if the financial present might be a little bit constrained. So overall, it's beneficial. For me, this one is a bit personal because, uh, yes, I have my MBA. I'm still paying off student loans from graduate school. I wanted to go to graduate school, but I also worked in an industry where it was a requirement, right? So to tell someone, you know, don't do it because of the debt involved with it, I just don't agree with that. And so I'll get off my soapbox on that regard. But when it comes to debt, I do not think that having a mortgage is bad, and I don't think that having a student loan is bad. Similarly for credit cards, yes, you want to pay your credit card balance in full. Uh, absolutely, that is ideal. But to tell people don't have credit cards when A, they can be very convenient, there, there's a safety element in that you're not carrying around cash with you, and then there's also a protection element to it when it comes to things that you might buy in terms of warranty features. You know, I'm reminded of recently I rented a car and there is, you know, a huge difference if you leave your um, credit card or, the, you know, the imprint of your credit card versus if you were to leave the imprint of your debit card to cover any sort of in incidentals. Like the amount of money that they hold back is very different for a debit card versus with a credit card. So in those instances, it's really helpful to have that as a tool that you can utilize and tap into. So again, I don't subscribe to all debt is bad. I think you need to be strategic about it. I think you need to have an exit plan and I, need, I think you need to have an alternative for if and when that exit plan does not work the way you intended. Um, related to that though is if you do have debt and if you are feeling a bit overwhelmed, this whole notion that you can cut your way out of debt, that you can cut your way in terms of all of your expenses. Yes, you probably do, if you're in that position, need to cut some of your expenses. But at some point, you reach that critical point where there is nothing else left for you to cut. And in that instance, the conversation that you really need to be having with yourself is, where do I need to be earning more? 
How do I need to be earning more? And perhaps how do I renegotiate some of the timing of these expenses that I have? So when you're just cutting and you're just focused on cutting, the thing that I think gets missed in that is it doesn't prompt you to have the deeper conversations that you need to have. So moving on, and it's kind of related, but it is the myth that says that you always be broke. So if you're in a tight situation right now, and I've talked about that in a previous episode, but if you're in a situation where your mindset has you such that you're like, oh God, I'm never going to get out of it, then you might find yourself in a self-fulfilling prophecy and you won't. But I don't want you to be there. So if you're subscribing to this myth, I think what this is really saying is that you're not able, you don't have the clarity. You don't have the clarity about where it is that you're going. You don't have the clarity about what needs to change. And you're so focused on being broke, being stuck and feeling frustrated about that, that you're not taking the time to really kind of think about what am I spending my money? What am I spending it on? Where might I need to earn a little bit more? How might I need to approach that a bit differently? Where might I need to say no, whether it's to myself, to my family members, including children? Where, where might you need to make some adjustments so that that current state of feeling broke is not something that is consistent and, and everlasting, right? So you want to get at the core of it. So the reason why I have this as a myth is because it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be a mindset that you embrace as it's, you know, this way and always. There is an alternative to it, but what that really is speaking to is that you're not tapping into some much needed clarity that will help you get onto the other side of this. That's why I'm calling this money myths and data points of misinformation because some of it really falls, you know, squarely in the the realm of a myth in terms of it being a false belief or idea and other aspects of it are just like data points of misinformation, i.e., you know, too old to get started with investing. But okay, let me move on. Um, Another myth. That buying a home is better than renting. For some people, maybe, but not necessarily for all. It could be because of the cost associated with buying a home. It could be because of the type of profession that you have. It might just not be prudent to do so. Um, But here's something that I wish I had done. I'm a renter. I love my apartment. I wished, though, that someone would have said to me, you can still rent, but why don't you buy something over here? And you can buy it as a rental property. And so you can have the, both, the, the best of both worlds, if you will. So this idea that, you know, uh, buying a home is A, better than renting, and that's the only way to achieving the American dream. I think that has caught so many people um, or caused so many people to be caught up in a vicious cycle that they can't seem to get themselves out of. And I think this also speaks to our cultural tendency to position things as either or rather than both and. So 
For some people, it is a myth or a misconception because buying a home is not necessarily better than renting for everybody. But I do think that buying a home is really good if you can do it in addition to renting. And I do hope that that makes sense because, again, that's one that's uh, personal and dear to me, if you will. Another, um, I think, money myth and data point of misinformation is this whole notion that if you do not have long-term care insurance before you're 50, well, you're out of luck. That's not true. I think if you are listening to this and you are between 50 and 65 or you're listening to this and you have parents that are between 50 and 65 and they don't yet have long-term care insurance, look into it and see about the cost um, associated with that. Don't overlook it simply because you have passed the 50 age. Look into it, see what you can do in terms of uh, you know, premium and coverage that works best for you. But again, going back to, if we're looking at the, what the actuarials are talking about in terms of um, lifespan and 93 years, between now and, and the age of 93, there may be a need for you to tap into that long-term care insurance. So if you can get it, even if you're in your 50s or 60s, then by all means, get it. So don't buy into that notion that if you didn't get it before 50, it's too late because that um, does not necessarily have to be so. Another myth that estate planning is only for wealthy people. Again, I've shared this in a previous episode. My family doesn't come from a private banking background. My mother worked at Social Security for 38 years, and yet she was hell-bent on us having an estate plan done. And I will tell you, as you know, her surviving child, I am so grateful that she did that because in the deepest depths of my grief and sorrow immediately after her death, I wasn't having to deal with things that should have been taken care of beforehand that weren't. So I am so grateful for her uh, for doing that. And I would just encourage other families listening that if you don't have your estate plan done, do it. Yes, death is the thing that triggers the use of it, but I really look at the act of estate planning as an act of love because it is helping those be, you know, that you're leaving behind not only fulfill your wishes in the way that you want them to, but it helps them to grieve uninterrupted. And I just think that that is an amazing gift to give. So hopefully everybody will do that, right? Um, but related to that, make sure that your will reflects the beneficiary designations that you have indicated on those beneficiary designation forms that you might have, i.e. at work um, or on other financial accounts. Because if there's any discrepancy, and you'll need to just confirm this with um, an attorney that practices estate planning in your state, but you'll need to confirm this, but typically if there's a discrepancy between the will and what's reflected on those beneficiary designation forms, the latter is what prevails. So you want to make sure that there's alignment between what you have stated in your will and what you have stated in your beneficiary designation forms. And what can happen is that if you leave a company 
you might not update your beneficiary designation forms. Um, and so you want to make sure that, you know, if you've got a 401k left at an old firm, that the designation, the beneficiary designation form of that, if it's been up, if, if, your, if your wishes have been updated, that that form reflects that. One way to also to deal with that is to roll that over and have it all in one place or fewer places. But you just want to make sure that um, A, you are creating an estate plan and that B, when you do so, that there is uh, alignment between what's indicated in your will and what's indicated on your beneficiary designation forms. Another myth is, um, what's another myth? Oh, here's another myth. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Here's another myth. That smart, college-educated professionals know what to do with their money, and they are doing it. It's not the case, guys. A lot of my coaching clients fit that profile. A lot of the people that I stand in front of for my speaking engagements fit that profile. And here's the deal. You can be smart, you can be curious, you can be driven, you can be college educated, you can be a rock star in what it is that you do. But it does not necessarily mean that that translates into your ability to also manage your money well. And even if it does, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are always doing the thing that you know you need to do. So if you're listening to this and you are someone who subscribes to that, please stop. Please get some help if you need that help to, you know, get you past a, a, a moment or a, a habit or a behavior or a mindset that may be holding you back because there's no reason for you to be stuck if you can get the help. And, and when I say if, really meaning if you will ask for it because that's what it requires. It requires you acknowledging that you need to ask for it and then seeking out those sources to help you in that regard. So there you have it, folks. These are my 10 money myths or data points of misinformation and what I think ought to be an alternative in terms of either a mindset shift or, and or a behavioral shift that can be the antidote to that myth or to that data point of misinformation. As always, I thank you so much for listening. And what I am hoping that you're going to do is, you know what, when we post this on social media, share with us what myths do you um, or have you subscribed to? Do you currently subscribe to? What myth have you um, abandoned? And do you have a myth that you are aware of that I didn't list here? Because clearly this is not an exhaustive list. This is just the 10 that I thought were... Um, the most common ones. But yeah, definitely let's not have this conversation end. I love it when people engage with me and you can do that on social media when you see this posted on Twitter or when you see this posted on Instagram. So again, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. And as always, I love it when you take the time to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If we're not already connected on social media, you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is J-A-C-Q-U-E-T-T-E-M Timmons. I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it a couple of more times as we proceed through the summer, and that is that I have created a program for recent college graduates 
pearls of financial wisdom for college graduates. Um, and it's all about helping them to transition in terms of you know their new roles and responsibilities when it comes to money and setting them up for really good success today and in the future. And you can check it out and do a preview of what's in the program by going to bit.ly forward slash preview dash pearls of wisdom and that's all lowercase. Once more, it's bit.ly forward slash preview dash pearls of wisdom. Again, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And until next time, remember, it is about more than money. 